Welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. We're so thankful that you've taken the time to join us today and want you to know that this is just one of the many resources available to you for free from Two Journeys Ministry. If you're interested in learning more, just head over to twojourneys.org. Now on to today's episode. This is episode five in the book of 1 Peter, entitled Wives and Husbands, where we'll discuss 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. I'm Wes Treadway, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, what are we going to see in these verses we're looking at today? So Peter's going to address uh, wives for six verses and husbands for one. And as he does so, he's seeking to enable both husbands and wives to live as aliens and strangers uh, in this world, but living holy and upright lives, as, as he said, be holy for I am holy. What does holiness look like in a Christian marriage and how can they make the gospel beautiful to those that are watching? Now, it may be a special focus that Peter is giving here is to wives of unbelieving husbands. Mm. And that's something that you know has happened frequently in, in church history. And uh, the the verses that we're going to study today are, are similar to chapter 218 when he talks about slaves of of harsh or cruel or unkind masters and obviously that's not an optimal situation but is there any hope for me the slave could say or is there any hope for me the wife could say in such a difficult marriage and peter gives some good clear guidance and some guidelines for how they can shine with the gospel light even in a very difficult circumstance but then he balances it off with uh, commands to husbands so it becomes more of an exhortation to just christian husbands and wives so we're going to see uh, in these verses just like ephesians 5 some some wonderful timely biblical instruction to help enrich our married lives together well, very good. So that we have a sense of the passage, verses 1 through 7, I'm going to go ahead and read those from 1 Peter chapter 3 now. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Hmm. Andy, as we get started, what does Peter mean when he commands wives to be subject to their own husbands, and what's the significance of the word own? Okay, so this is the same command that, that uh, the Apostle Paul gives in Ephesians 5, uh, verse 22, wives, submit yourselves, and again, he intensifies it to your own husbands. Uh, so the word is a very important word, and, and I think in Ephesians 5.21, it's more challenging because we have uh, this phrase, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, and then verse 22, wives to your own husbands. Actually, the command isn't even given in, in that section of the verse, but it's it comes over from verse 21. And so therefore, a false teaching, I think, uh, not false teaching like heretical, but a, a misunderstanding 
comes with this concept of mutual submission, mm -hmm. which I actually think makes no sense if you know what the word submit means or the concept means. I believe that the concept means uh, to obey someone who is in God-ordained authority over you. It has to do with God-ordained authority. And so in Ephesians, there's wives obeying or submitting to their husbands, and then some commands are given to the husbands of how they carry themselves, and then uh, children obeying their parents and some instructions given to the fathers on well, how they're sp supposed to carry themselves, and then slaves obeying their masters and some instructions given to the masters. It's not mutual submission. It's this group of Christians to this group of Christians. So the idea is that there's an inherent authority that God sets up. In no way by setting that up does he imply that uh, husbands are better or more important or more godly or more anything than wives. They're just in the position of leadership in the relationship in the same way. He in no way uh, is saying that parents are better or more human or more highly to be esteemed than children and et cetera. Same thing with governments and subjects or citizens, uh, et cetera. It's just order. Uh, God's setting up order. But we can't have a new kind of understanding of this with submission being anything other than to arrange yourself under the God-given authority of, uh, of another individual. And so a hus husband in this text, and also Ephesians, has a God-given authority, a right to lead in the marriage relationship. So verse 1, it's wives in the same way submit yourselves to your own husbands. So arrange yourself under their leadership. Uh, now, again, there's so many things we could say about this, and it's going to be really relevant in this text because we're immediately going to talk about uh, husbands that don't believe the word or obey the word. Um, but we don't, we don't need to obey immoral commands. We don't need to follow immoral or wicked commands. But we are to follow unbelievers that are in authority over us as long as their commands are not ungodly. So that's just some be beginning comments here. And so let's zero in on uh, where you were just headed. Peter says some of these husbands may not obey the word. So some of them do not obey the word. Yeah. Why could it be incredibly difficult for a God-fearing wife to submit to an ungodly husband? Well, it's just difficult uh, in, in every respect. You know, I think marriage between two spirit-filled, you know, mature Christians is hard enough. Uh, it's it's challenge enough because you each have a sin nature. You got a long history with each other. Uh, there's just different things that make marriage a challenge. But how much more difficult when only one of them is walking with the Lord and the other one just has an entirely different worldview? It's very very difficult. Now, obviously, we shouldn't willingly get into a situation like that by marrying intentionally marrying an unbeliever or even marrying somebody whose walk with Christ is questionable. That would just be very unwise. However, God in his sovereignty often makes mixed marriages by converting just one of the, mm. the two. He might convert the wife and not the husband yet. Mm. And Peter's view here, interestingly, is the converting power of the wife's submission. Yeah. That, that she might actually have the power by her submissiveness to win him over to Christ. So that's in, in view here. But the idea here is that she is in a very, very challenging situation mm -hmm. of uh, an unbelieving husband. He doesn't obey the word or believe the word. What's she going to do? And the first thing Peter uh, says to do is to submit to him. And we understand that means submit as much as you possibly can. Now, how is it that 
an unbelieving husband might be won over to the faith by the conduct of his wife? How, what might that look like for this God-fearing wife? Well, you think about about how much patience she's going to show, how her prayers. Mm. She is in the in the uh, kind of uh, position of the persistent widow who has no power uh, to some degree in the situation, but but she takes her weakness and her, her difficulties to God, who's the sovereign ruler of the universe and begs for his conversion. So that is a very powerful thing. But then along the way, there's all kinds of virtuous acts. She carries herself as a virtuous woman. Her virtue in Christ is beautiful. And we're gonna talk about that in a minute, but there's a, a, just a beauty to her submissiveness and to her trust in God. And he, and that the gospel is being put on display. Now I wanna say one thing, an insight that I've had, I don't wanna go too far with this, but I think it's, it's valid. I think these verses are also for Christian couples because it doesn't say that the husband's unbelieving or not a Christian. It says, if any of them do not believe the word or any of them do not obey the word, different translations. That's all husbands at some point. There are some times that every Christian husband isn't believing God's word properly or obeying it properly. Mm. So I think it can be helpful even married to a, a very good, mature Christian man who's having a very bad day, all right, or a bad afternoon or is, or is filled with sinful anger at that moment or mm. pride. At that moment, he's not walking with the Lord. He's acting very much like an unbeliever. So these verses can even help in that situation. So I don't want to just say, well, these verses can't help me. My, my husband is a Christian, but he's yeah. still behaving. No, these verses just say, if any of them don't believe the word, what should your strategy be? Be submissive, be really good, be, be you know, uh, godly. And then even, as we'll talk about just in a moment, winning him over without words. Mm. So that's going to be kind of a challenge. Yeah. Uh, how does verse two shed light on this kind of conduct, right? Peter mm -hmm. uh, uses uh, two words here, respectful and pure conduct. What, right. what is that? Yeah, I think it's so important. These verses, you know, and I just touched on this a moment ago, but the without words, that's tough, especially for some women. There are some women that the more difficult it gets, the more words they want to put to the situation. They want to, they want to wear him down with just truth. And, and just speak and speak and speak to him. Now, I don't think we could go far, so far the other way that you should never say anything to the unbelieving husband or to the husband that's not believing the word. Don't say anything to him. No, that's not it. But, the, but you're not putting your trust in your own words. It says that he may be won over without words by the behavior. Hmm. So the idea here is virtuous behavior. And then I would think at that point that whatever words you do say, become like like diamonds uh, in a beautiful setting, a setting of gold, because there's so much virtue going on, then when the opportunity comes to speak, it's going to be very powerful. And uh, he says in verse two, when they see the purity and reverence of your lives, what's your translation say? Respectful and pure. Okay, so uh, there's purity there. Um, she's a godly woman, she's not sinning. She's not giving way to, to pride on her part. She's not being carnal toward him uh, and she's, generally you know submissive i think there's a beautiful picture of this though they weren't married at the time they later became married but uh, uh and that's david and abigail uh as you remember in that particular case david was enraged he was really really angry because abigail's husband nabal which means fool uh drunken boorish angry man uh, had behaved very badly in reference to David and his men who had cared for the flocks and protected mm. them and did all that. And he just wanted 
He wanted to be, you know, to receive something back for that labor. And he's like, he's not getting anything from me. And David told his men, put on your swords and we're going to go. We're going to go do some slaughter here. Mm. And Abigail goes out and kind of just by the way she carries herself wins him over. Hmm. And um, and she did talk to him. Obviously, she said some things, but mm-hmm. but it's just the the purity and reverence of Abigail's life. I always thought if I could just see one woman in David's life, his whole life, it would have been her. I wish she was <laughs> his first and only wife. That would have been really pretty awesome because she's a great woman. So the idea here is your strategy is I'm going to be a very godly woman, and I'm going to pray, hmm. and I'm going to trust God to change his heart. Now, verses three and four really contrast two kinds of, of beauty. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's the danger of focusing on adorning yourself? And mm-hmm. is Peter saying that we shouldn't care what we look like on the outside at all? What, mm-hmm. What's the core issue here in verses three and four? Well, we don't want to go to either extreme. And I think he's arguing against one extreme. Mm. The answer isn't the opposite extreme. Sure. So I think there there's clear evidence of the of the the reasonableness and the not not immorality of jewelry. Um, there's there's numbers of verses that show women uh, receiving jewelry as gifts or wearing jewelry in a godly sort of way. For example, uh, Abraham's servant gives to Rebecca some um, gold rings and she puts them on and some bracelets and different things. So if it were ungodly, that would not have been a good gift, uh, etc. But the point is, you, you think about some women who are vain or the the temptation that maybe all women have in that in that way just like men might all have temptation toward uh, angry abusiveness it doesn't mean they ever give into it but it's there it's inside them that masculine drive and energy and all that can easily bubble over into uh, abusive words and even abusive actions doesn't make it right well i think with a woman she has a great deal of concern about her outward appearance she spends a lot of time on it she spends a lot of time on her hair a lot of time on her cosmetics a lot of time on her appearance and all that well, there's a point in which a good thing can become a bad thing. And Peter's saying, you know, don't trust in your physical beauty. Hmm. Uh, the book of Proverbs says, charm is deceptive and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is of great worth and honor and is greatly to be praised. So the idea here is don't don't have that vain deception, yeah. that, that trickery of the cosmetics and all that. I think about one example of this. Is uh, is Jezebel, mm. who was getting getting all gussied up and dressed when Jehu came, who would be her killer, um, her her executioner from God. Mm. Uh, her husband was dead now; the other king was dead, and he's coming for her. And this is it. This is this is judgment of God. He's a, she's a wicked woman, and she's there painting her eyes. And I've thought before, well, the, that, that cosmetic ended up in a dog's belly at the end of the day. Yeah. <laughs> so she's trying to make herself look beautiful. And for what? Mm. She's a thoroughly disgusting woman. So the idea here is of a godly Christian woman doesn't mean she can't wear makeup, doesn't mean that she can't or shouldn't you know, comb her hair and, and look nice. Instead, what is she trusting in? Her real beauty, mm. real beauty comes from virtue. And now here's one, one thing I want to say. I've seen some women in our church uh, in the years that I've been here that became, I would say, more and more beautiful as they got older, mm. but not physically. I mean, they aged, but they didn't worry about it. They got themselves dressed for church and they got their hair looking as nice as they could and they put on, but they, they knew that they were well past their physical prime, but they just were godly women mm. and they were loving and they were prayer warriors and they loved their husbands 
They were just virtuous. And they became more and more beautiful to their own husbands as they got older and older. And I think that's what Peter's getting at here. Be a woman like that. Yeah, yeah. Now, why is it so important to see that the hidden person of the heart is properly adorned? You've alluded to that just now as we've kind of talked about this contrast that he draws in verse 3. But why, why this hidden person of the heart? And he goes on, you know, to talk about the gentle and quiet mm. spirit. Mm. Um, wow. Why, why is this heart stance very precious in God's sight? Yeah. Well, that's true of everyone. I mean, Jesus talked about the scribes and Pharisees that were like whitewashed tombs. So there are men that can do this too. They look good on the outside, but inside they are corrupt. Mm. Christianity is, unlike Islam, Christianity is a religion of, of heart purity that results in life purity. It's not just a bunch of external submission to rules and regulations like Islam is. It has to do with what's actually going on in your heart while you do your good work. So it's a heart religion. You have heard that it was said, you shall not murder. But I say that if you're even angry in your heart, it's like you've murdered someone in your heart. Jesus is looking at the heart. So it is with the women here in this case. God is looking at your heart. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Hmm. So that's what, you know, what God said to Samuel concerning which um, man would be the one chosen to be king. And so God looks at the heart with a woman too. And the idea is that your beauty should be of the inner self, the unfading beauty. I love that. Mm. Unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. So the word unfading means it's incorruptible. It's like I said about those, those older women I just mentioned. They got more and more beautiful as they got older, older and older. Christian women can and should become more and more beautiful as they get older. Mm. And that's what he's talking about here. And then this phrase, a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. This is true of men too, but we'll zero in on the context here is talking about, about women who carry themselves with this gentleness mm. and this quietness. It's just like uh, Paul says when he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. She must be silent. All right. A woman should learn, he said in that same text, in quietness and full submission. It's the same concept. First Timothy 2 and First Peter 3 is, is there's this quietness. They're not churning. They're not roiling. They're not rebelling. They're just quiet under God's word. Mm. Um, you know, it's it's that uh, uh, definition of Christian contentment, which yeah. is the sweet, inward, quiet, um, you know, gracious spirit. It's a quiet spirit under the hand of God. This woman, this beautiful woman, is quiet under God's hand. She's not rebellious. So it's that gentle, quiet spirit, which it says, and this is incredible, is of great worth in God's sight. I would think if I'm a godly woman, a Christian woman reading that, it's like, that's what I want. Yeah. Oh, God, give me that, because you said, it's what you think is beautiful. It's what you think is valuable. Mm. And it's amazing when we esteem the things that God esteems highly, how that bears much fruit in our lives. And as I was meditating on these verses, I was thinking of that definition that Jeremiah Burroughs gives. And then mm -hmm. as you've reflected on, even in your own book on contentment, just what a, what a gift it is to be quiet before yeah. the Lord and, and submit ourselves ultimately to Him sure. in a way that's pleasing. Yeah, and again, I don't want to take take this out of its context, but, but I think it's important for all Christians to study this because it says in Isaiah 57, the wicked are like the churning sea which mm. cannot rest, whose waves cast up mire and muck. Mm. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. The picture there is a, of a turbulent sea and it's like all Christians should say, God, I know that's in me. I know that turbulent, you know, churning spirit is inside me. But God, I want you to just say, peace be still to my heart. I want you to calm me and make me quiet and make me gentle. But here the context is, is of, the, of the Christian wife 
especially with a husband who's given her trouble. Yeah. Maybe an unbelieving husband mm-hmm. or one who's not acting like a Christian today, that she would, by response, have a gentle and quiet spirit and pray for him. That's beautiful. Yeah. Now, before Peter addresses the husbands, he wraps up this section uh, reflecting on a specific example right. uh, in the life of Sarah, uh, uses her as an example of godly submission. How can we reconcile this statement where Peter's talking about Sarah in verses 5 and 6 mm-hmm. with actions that Sarah uh, takes part in in places like Genesis 16? Mm-hmm. And how can that be encouraging uh, as we see statements like here in First Peter or Hebrews 11 uh, spoken over Sarah's life. Yeah, so Sarah um, is, is a, here a paragon example of a godly woman of the past. Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, chooses her out and holds her up as, um, as a, a woman uh, worthy of imitation. So I think he has in mind uh, the time when the angel said to the Lord, um, uh, angel said, angel of the Lord said to Abraham and Sarah overheard, um, you know, a, a year from now I'll return and Sarah will have a son. And she, she said, even when I'm old and my master or my Lord is old, uh, will we have this pleasure? Um, so that's when he, she calls him Lord or master. Mm. Um, and so he picks up on that. And, and it's, it's interesting cause it's like, you know, a little bit dangerous to quote this these days. It's like 21st century. Are you really wanting us Christian <laughs> wives to call our husbands Lord or Master? Oh my Lord, my I Master. I don't know no. if I want that. That's a, <laughs> I'm sure I want that. A whole that. different. <laughs> right, right, right. So, but the idea is not so much the the cultural trapping of it, but the respect mm. and the esteem that comes. There is an old saying that comes in very much with Christian wives, I think, and Christian husbands too. Familiarity breeds contempt. The more you know someone, you know their strengths and especially their weaknesses. And I mean, I don't mean to be TMI here, but literally dirty laundry. Uh, You've been with this man for years and there's no shine anymore. It's like he's a man Hmm. with all of his strengths and weaknesses and issues. And it's hard to respect. Very hard after all those years Hmm. to really, you know, it says... Husbands should love their wives as they love themselves, and the wives should see to it that they respect their husbands. It's like a special emphasis because it's hard to do. Hmm. It's like, what's there to respect? You know, he's a sinner. He's, he frustrates me. He's, he procrastinates. Sometimes he gets angry. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. All of that's true. But still there's this command. Hmm. And so Sarah's brought forth as a woman who considered her husband, Abraham, to be uh, worthy of that kind of esteem. She made herself beautiful by being submissive to uh, to her own husband. Sarah was known for her beauty. Uh, it was an issue so much, though, that Abraham mm-hmm. said she's my sister. Um, so she was known for her beauty, but what was really beautiful was her, her submissiveness. And so she obeyed Abraham and called him master or lord. And then he, uh, she says, you are her daughters if you do what is right. And very interestingly, do not give way to fear. There is a fear factor here. It's like, if we just do this, my husband is going to drive the family off the cliff, mm. metaphorically. I, I need to grab the steering wheel from time to time. He doesn't know what he's doing. Mm. And it's tough because most women that I know, this is a normal thing. Women think in far greater detail and are far more farsighted in their plans than the men are frequently. And they generally do know best practically what needs to be done. Doesn't mean they should grab the steering wheel. Hmm. And that's hard for her to learn. It's like it's actually better to do it 
not a great way mm. than to grab the steering wheel of leadership in the family from him. And, or, and sometimes they do it, they grab it in different ways. Like uh, saw this movie, My Big Fat Greek Wedding, where it says, uh, yeah, the husband's the head, but the wife's the neck. <laughs> so that's manipulation mm. by clever influences and, and innuendo and all that you can get him to do. You can play him like a fiddle. Mm. And she knows how to do that. You know, uh, you even see that in the patriarchs with uh, uh, Rebecca and Jacob and all that. And it's like, I tell you what we're going to do. And so she's manipulating. Yeah. And so at any rate, don't do that. Don't do any of that. Just trust God. Hmm. Be above board in who you are. Be beautiful in your virtue. Pray for him and win him over. Hmm. That's the whole strategy Peter's giving here. That's really helpful. So Peter then turns his attention in verse 7. We spent a lot of time looking at how Peter addresses wives, but Peter Mm -hmm. turns his attention in verse 7 to husbands. Mm -hmm. Why do you think Peter commands husbands to live with their wives in an understanding way? And let me just say before you answer that, that this verse has always been challenging to me Mm because I just feel my weakness in the area of being an understanding person. So help us think well uh, as husbands. Why, Why is Peter... Uh, commanding husbands to live in this way with their wives. Yeah, I want to, before I answer that, I want to pick up on a phrase that I see in verse one and now again in verse seven. Mm -hmm. And that's the phrase, in the same way, in the same way, in the Mm. same way. It's in verse one to the wives, wives in the same way and husbands in the same way. What is he talking about? And I'm not entirely sure, but I think you definitely would have to go back to chapter two. And the idea then uh, would be, um, I think in general, um, a godly life lived in, in view of the the cross in view of jesus dying on the cross he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness by his wounds you have been healed for you are like sheep going astray but now you've come back to the shepherd overseers of your soul so in the same way wives so in light of the cross Hmm. and the fact that jesus death frees you from wandering and frees you from sin, then be a submissive wife and a beautiful wife. Husbands, in light of the cross, in light of Jesus dying for you, then be a certain kind of husband. I think that's, I like that in the same way. That's my best crack at what in the same way means. It could be in the same way as the whole master-slave thing earlier, um, but it's all part of the Christian life he's giving. All right, now, with husbands, he says, um, live with your wives according to knowledge. So that's what he's giving us here. Live with them according to knowledge. Knowledge of what? Well, I think it's, it'd be easy and, and in some cases, obviously best to say in light of the knowledge of the word of God or in knowledge of God, in knowledge of God's expectations. All of those things would be true. But I don't think there'd be anything wrong with saying that the knowledge would be of her, hmm. that you're going to know her. And I'm going to tell you something about her. She's the weaker vessel but she's also an heir with you of the gracious gift of life. There's some things you should know about her. But then beyond that, just knowing your wife, knowing, first of all, what a woman is like, right? And then what your specific wife is like. What's What are her tendencies? What really encourages her? Hmm. As some have said before, what is her love language? You know, what, what really blesses her? Conversely, what really irritates and frustrates her? What's like fingernails on a blackboard for her if you do? All right, just study her. Guarantee she's studying you. (laughs) So study her, know her, live with her according to knowledge. Hmm. And I think the best example of this we have is Adam, when he first sees his wife, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. 
she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That's interesting. How in the world did Adam know that? He was asleep at the time, (laughs) in a deep sleep. I know how he knew it. God told him. So the idea I would give to Christian husbands is you want to learn your wife, ask God about her. Hmm. Ask him about her. Ask him in the scripture about women. What does this text tell me about women? What does the Bible tell me about women? And what are you telling me about my wife in particular? Hmm. So what I would say in Christian marriage is a very important thing I've learned. Genesis 1, Genesis 2. Genesis 1, there is no differentiation at all in roles between male and female. They are both equally in the image of God, equally given the cultural mandate to fill the earth, so do it, rule over it, equal, equal, equal. Just absolute equality, Genesis 1. Genesis 2, Adam's alone for a while. Then Eve comes along. And Peter, uh, Paul sorry, later tells us that you know the reason that men should lead in churches is Adam's form first, then Eve. So there's a differentiation of role. So the way I look at it is the by far the more important, most important things about us hmm. are the things that we hold equally. Yeah. Both created in the image of God, both redeemed by the blood of Christ, and as he says here, both going to the same heaven. All right? And many other things. But there are some differences, and hmm. that has to do with the husband-wife relationship. So he says, live with your wives according to knowledge. Um, so study her, get to know what she loves, what she needs, what her needs are. Shepherd your wife, study her, learn her, and live with her according to knowledge. And then he says, treat your wife with respect. Hmm. Um, what does your translation say? It says showing honor. Honor. Okay. I like that. Honor mm-hmm. her, respect her. So that's really, really important. You think about that. You're mm. going to treat her with dignity. You're not to degrade her or belittle her mm. in any way. Treat her with with. You know, is that whole system of chivalry? We don't have to do all those old things, but just there's a sense of honor that's shown to her as a woman um, and as your as your beloved wife. Treat her that way. But then it says, as the weaker partner. So how are they weaker? It's, you can remove certain things. It's, it's not like pain tolerance, whatever. Women in labor uh, go through <laughs> more pain than most men ever will, and they go through with amazing courage. Um, so it's not that some women have been courageous martyrs for Christ and they've, you know, but I think like two of you on a hike, two of you on a run, for the most part, the man's got greater endurance. So, um, you get the sense of that with, with Jacob, where he said to Esau, I'm not going to go with you and your 400 men because I've got women, we've got children, we've got you, you lambs with their, with, you know, if, if, if we drive them hard, even one day they're going to die. Mm -hmm. So being aware of their limitations, being, you know, sometimes a a husband can just look at, at his wife and say, you're working too hard. You know, we've got some incredible women in our in our church that are so conscientious, they're homeschooling, they're doing all kinds of stuff, and, and they work so hard, and it's like they can work themselves right to the point of exhaustion. Mm. So just being aware of her limitations. But here's a, especially, I think, in this way, a conflict. Mm. She's weaker in the conflict. And you're like, well, what do you mean? And, you know, my wife's far more verbal than I am. She wins every debate. And it's like, yeah, but she's still thinking about it days later, and you've moved on. Mm. You're like, that evening you're done. So it's like she's fine china in your Tupperware, you know? And and it's like, it's not like it doesn't hurt. Men get hurt too, they do. But men recover more quickly. So be really, really careful. Like Proverbs says, stop the breach before it widens, but stop the conflict before it gets going because you're going to hurt her. Mm. 
Mm. And you're going to say some things that she's going to still be thinking about months later. So as the weaker partner. And then he says, heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. I already talked about that, but she is going to the same heaven you are. So keep that in mind. Honestly, the best way for a Christian husband to look at it is, is say, I'm not her real husband. I'm her temporary husband. Christ is her real husband. And this marriage we have is a temporary thing getting her ready for her wedding day. And frankly, for mine too. So as we carry out these roles, we're getting ready for the being heirs of life, of that heavenly life. So that's what I think he means here. So Andy, uh, final phrase here. What do you make of this phrase, so that your prayers may not be hindered? How should this be sobering, perhaps even a warning for men as we wrap up our time? I think about this verse a lot. I felt it. Hmm. I felt it. I felt the times that our prayers have been hindered. So my sin um, hinders our prayers. It's hard, harder for her to pray, to want to pray with me. Um, harder for us to be open and all that. And maybe God will just withhold some prayers and uh, some blessings in prayer. He just won't answer our prayers hmm. because we're in sin. And so uh, there is a very strong connection here. And, he, and Peter's going to do the same thing in the next chapter. He says, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. So how you live affects how you pray. Hmm. So for me, it's it's almost like, you know, I don't want to go into details here, but kind of marital relations, if you know what I mean. If you're intending to have intimacy with your wife, you should treat her well throughout the day. You should be kind to her uh, so she won't feel used. Well, I think the exact same thing happens with prayer. You want to pray with your wife tonight? You want to pray together and hold hands and then treat her well all day so that you can have a good prayer time tonight. I think that would be a good way to look at it. So nothing will hinder your prayers. Treat treat her well. Mm, That's so helpful. Any final thoughts for men and women as we seek to live out these first seven verses of 1 Peter chapter 3? No, I'm just re-motivated to do this in my own marriage. So I want to see if I can live that out. I I pray that we can. Mm -hmm. Well, this has been episode five in the book of 1 Peter. And we want to invite you to join us next time for episode six, entitled, A Good Life Leads to Evangelistic Opportunities where we'll discuss 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 17. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification, and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.